From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. When Russia invaded Ukraine, many thought the war would last just days. A little over a year later, there's no end in sight. What we have now is a temporary stalemate in a grinding war of attrition. Putin will not do what any rational Russian statesman should do right now. Stop the war and begin serious peace talks. Today, a roundtable of foreign policy experts assembled by the World Affairs Council in Colorado Springs. Regardless of the outcome, I think we must all understand that Russia will emerge from this war weaker and a much more chastened state, militarily, economically, and demographically. Meanwhile, China could prove pivotal. This is now becoming a struggle between democracies and authoritarian regimes. When your car stops working, needs too many repairs, or when you're just ready for a new one, donate it to Colorado Public Radio. We'll come pick it up, then send you a tax receipt when it sells. To get things started, all you have to do is follow a few simple setup steps, say goodbye, and then your car will soon be on its way to making great things happen. Start the donation process on the support page at CPR.org. Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. When Russia invaded Ukraine, many thought the war would last only a few days. Now, just over a year later, there's no end in sight. And the role of outside influencers like China is growing. This week, the World Affairs Council in Colorado Springs gathered experts to offer context. CPR's Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce moderated the discussion. First, let's meet the panelists. Ray Raymond is a longtime British diplomat who worked on the political and military relationship among the United States, the European Union, and NATO. He's also an instructor at West Point. Raymond will address Vladimir Putin's objectives and China's influence. I'm alarmed. I'm alarmed because over the past year, I've seen a vicious, unprovoked Russian invasion underway in Ukraine with no ground rules, no guardrails, and no end in sight. What we have now is a temporary stalemate in a grinding war of attrition. Putin, the man who launched it, is an amoral, ruthless, mafia-like godfather who governs with an iron fist, who crushes dissent, murders or imprisons those who oppose him, and who breaks the law, Russian or international, at will when it suits him. Internationally, Putin is, and over the past eight years, has been a violent expansionist. He is also irrational, unbalanced, unpredictable, oh, and probably paranoid too. Putin believes that we in the West are determined to destroy the Russian motherland. Absolute nonsense, of course. In July 2021, he published a long essay entitled On the Historical Unity of Russians and Ukrainians. In it, he argued that we in the West are deliberately sowing seeds of division between the two parts of what he sees as the holy trinity of Belarus, Russia, and Ukraine. This concept, borrowed in part from Alexander Solzhenitsyn and from the Orthodox Patriarch of Moscow, fuels a new and dangerous brand 
of Russian exceptionalism that supports and legitimizes Putin as a kind of 21st century Peter the Great. As such, Putin will not do what any rational Russian statesman should do right now. Stop the war and begin serious peace talks. President Zelensky, for his part, has rejected Putin's virulent Russian imperialism and has made his government's wishes very clear. They want control of their own destiny, and they see that destiny within the European Union and NATO. At present, therefore, at least in terms of the bilateral diplomacy between Russia and Ukraine, there is very little scope for serious diplomatic discussions because the gap between their bottom lines, both Russian and Ukrainian, are so far apart that for the moment at least there is no scope for meaningful diplomacy. And frankly, I don't think Putin cares. He appears to believe that within a year or two, war weariness, particularly on Capitol Hill in Washington, will basically lead to a situation where we will accept whatever settlement he wants to propose. He also seems to believe that time is on his side politically, that within a few years, right-wing populism will triumph in countries like France and the United States, and that these new leaders will agree to overturn Europe's post-Cold War security architecture, including reversing NATO expansion. Now, one question that I want to address particularly is this. Could China change the dynamics of the Ukraine war? My answer to that is yes, if Xi really chooses to do so. First, a brief word of context on the Russian-Chinese relationship. As Xi sees it, this relationship is useful. Putin has not only removed the conventional Russian military threat to China's western borders, he distracts the United States from its focus on Asia, enables China to focus on its principal adversary, the United States, and supplies China with cheap energy, which, of course, it desperately needs. But for Putin, this relationship with Xi helps to ensure that the United States cannot devote all of its capabilities and energies to supporting Ukraine. The relationship with China not only enables Putin to evade some Western sanctions by giving him a market for Russian oil, albeit at a bargain basement unprofitable price, it also gives him, in Xi, a powerful diplomatic ally in the United Nations Security Council and in other inter important international fora. It gives him a powerful ally, a near equal of the United States, someone who can also help him to try to divide the United States from its European allies. Now, let me just say that although the tone of the most recent Putin-Xi summit was more subdued than the one about a year ago, there is clearly an alliance here based on shared interest and shared values. Putin and Xi clearly want to create a new, mutually supportive structure that will make the world safe for autocracy. So will Xi help Putin by giving him weapons and ammunition? I don't think so. It's not likely at present. But that could change, I believe, if Putin and his regime are in danger of collapsing. It's not in Xi's interest to have a pro-Western democracy in his back garden. 
But that, of course, does not rule out dual-use technologies, which Xi is already providing, or covert military aid. So will Xi be tempted? Yes, I think he will be tempted. As The Economist suggested last week, relations between the United States and China are in, and I quote, a new dangerous phase, close quote, more confrontational than at any time in the past 40 years. But will Xi succumb to this temptation? I don't think so. I really doubt it. Xi will always put China's interest first. Surprise, surprise. And he does not want to incur American or European sanctions against Chinese companies. Because after all, Xi's legitimacy and that of his communist government depends on delivering prosperity for his people. China's experiencing, in addition to other domestic problems, a real slowdown in economic growth. And that has created enough of a problem for Xi to be very leery of incurring sanctions from the United States or from Europe. But diplomatically, could he help? Absolutely, if he wants to. Xi is the one person on the face of this earth who has real influence in Moscow. But is it enough to push Putin into peace negotiations? I don't know. Ray Raymond, longtime British diplomat and professor at West Point. Next on the panel from the Colorado Springs World Affairs Council, Carl Schneider. He's a retired Army Special Forces officer with two decades of service. He also worked at NATO's High Readiness Force headquarters. Schneider explains why he's concerned the war in Ukraine could escalate and expand. I really have nothing good to say today. We've been on a slow, deliberate march to global conflict, and that is now about to, in military parlance, speed up into a double-time run. Events that occurred every few years seem to be coming at us more frequently, if not on a weekly basis, if not a daily basis. Things are happening rapidly. To be clear, these adversaries are the state and not the nations or the people with whom there are issues. The governments of Russia, China, and North Korea really the dictators Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping, and Kim Jong-un, are the cause of the impending high-intensity conflict. Everyone else, both military and diplomatically, are working and trying to rise to meet the coming conflict. The question is, are they moving fast enough? Finland joining NATO is absolutely escalatory from the point of view of Russia, China, and North Korea. It indicates that the West is closing ranks, gathering together, and firming up resolve, and affirming the commitment to Article 5 of the NATO Treaty that an attack on one is an attack on all. This action, from a Finnish perspective, protects the 832-mile-long border with Russia from possible invasion, or at least it provides consequences for an invasion or incursion. I suggest that Turkey should move rapidly to accept Sweden into NATO as soon as possible, but we know that the Turks are a fickle bunch. Militarily, the West has increased support with heavy armor, whose deployment timeline has been moved up. Uh, Ukraine has received a high Mars 142, a multiple launch rocket system which delivers surgical strikes on enemy control posts, ammunition and fuel storage depots, support by way of combat aircraft, and I think you recall that was one of Putin's red lines. And as was disclosed earlier this week, leak of classified information that U.S. intelligence is actually working in support of Ukraine. This is all escalatory in Putin's mind. These escalations, though, on our part, 
need to happen and are necessary to rise to meet the threat. We've seen a continued escalation in dangerous and provocative activities. Last October, Russia deployed its most advanced nuclear-capable submarine, measuring over 600 feet in length. The Belgorod is the largest submarine in the world and capable of carrying the so-called doomsday Poseidon nuclear torpedo drones, which, according to Russia, could trigger 1,600-foot nuclear tsunamis that would inundate coastal cities from hundreds of miles away and render them uninhabitable for decades. More escalation. The destruction of a U.S. drone over international waters of the Black Sea and the promise of placing, if they aren't there already, tactical nuclear weapons on Belarus's soil is a great concern to the West. The increased deployment of military forces, weapon systems, and operations raised the stakes demonstrably in Europe. That is, an incident, what would in other times be considered a flap, could rapidly become a crisis, which in turn could rapidly evolve into a high-intensity conflict. And this, my friends, could rapidly devolve into absolute chaos. And why is that? It's because the Russian forces are incompetent. We've seen that. They're incompetent on the ground. They're impotent in the air and sinkable in the ocean. Their only real escalatory tool is the threat of use of nuclear arms. I see Putin willing to deploy a tactical nuke to make a point and preserve his organization, his government. He is resolved to get his way, clear and simple. And I think we should plan for his use of tactical nuclear weapons. The walls are closing in on Vladimir Putin himself personally with his indictment by the International Criminal Court for war crimes. He's feeling the noose around his neck. He may not show it. We may not see it. But it's there. The recent visit by Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen uh, last week with the U.S. Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy garnered an almost immediate military response where China practiced embargoing the island of Taiwan. How interested is Xi Jinping to save face? What must he do to maintain control of not just Taiwan, but the rest of his oppressed peoples? I think he'll do anything. North Korea, emboldened by the world's occupation with Russia and China, are ramping up uranium production, testing their submarine capabilities, and much like what I talked about with the Bolgorod, testing their underwater nuclear-capable drones. That should give us all pause. North Korea continues to be politically isolated as ever from the rest of the world and building relations with the three adversaries as evidenced in the grain for bullets deal of recently with Russia. And then just the other day, it may have been yesterday, they cut communications and telephone communications with South Korea. The Kim dynasty will do anything as well to stay in power. I think the world is aligning. The tempo of military activities is increasing. The risk is growing, and it's very unclear to me how we can unwind our current situation without a high-intensity conflict. I don't think there are any off-ramps. We should well prepare for the challenges ahead. And oh, by the way, I haven't even touched on the Middle East or South America, where Russia stationed a couple strategic bombers not too long ago. Carl Schneider, retired Army Special Forces officer, part of a roundtable on the war in Ukraine recorded earlier this week from the World Affairs Council in Colorado Springs. We'll meet the other two panelists after the break, who talk about the effects on Eastern Europe and whether there's a way out of the conflict. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The newest podcast from Colorado Public Radio called Terra Firma brings you the sounds of nature with reflections from Colorado-born writer C. Marie Furman. I hope that you find Terra Firma a place where you're not being pulled away, but pulled to a few minutes to connect to a story, to a landscape, and to yourself. Find Terra Firma wherever you get your podcasts. Supported by Credit Union of Colorado.
Insight today into the war in Ukraine, a little more than a year after Russia's invasion. The World Affairs Council assembled a roundtable this week at our Southern Colorado Public Media Center in Colorado Springs. We are hearing first from each of the panelists. A little later, my colleague Dan Boyce moderates a discussion among them. Edin Moikic is an associate professor of national security and foreign policy at UCCS. He also worked at the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe and for NATO in his native Bosnia and Herzegovina. His focus, how the war affects Eastern Europe. As I mentioned a year ago when we had the first panel about this situation, I think that Putin grossly underestimated democracies. But since then, I think that we can safely say that this is now becoming a struggle between democracies and authoritarian regimes. As you can see, autocracies, dictatorships, wannabe dictators are aligning with Putin because they see this as a struggle between them and democracies. If Putin fails in Ukraine, their days might be doomed. As always, Eastern Europe has all these troublesome spots. Today, those are Georgia, Moldova, and pretty much half Balkans, Western Balkans. I would say that the most danger today are the Georgia and Moldova. Uh, we've seen in the Georgia uh, movement against a government that tried to impose certain laws to suppress uh, freedoms, freedom of expression, journal, uh, press, etc., etc., and uh, that's a welcome sign that people in Georgia wouldn't stand for that. But that's uh, it's it's hard to say that they are far from danger. They are right there in the uh, in the middle of the of the conflict, to put it this way, conflict area. Moldova, the same way. A lot of people uh, don't take into consideration that there is a whole part of Moldova, Transnistria that is controlled by the pro-Russian forces that has actually deployed Russian troops. And what happens in Ukraine is going to be make it or break it for Moldova. If Putin succeeds in Ukraine, it's hard to believe that he will not have his eyes set on small country like Moldova, especially considering how fragmented that country is between pro-EU and pro-Russian establishment. Moving to the Balkans, I would say that unlike Georgia and Moldova, Balkans is in a little bit uh, safer area considering proximity to the West. We now have a China openly getting in, involved in the Balkans, trying to, uh, not trying, but actually we'll see in a few days whether they're going to pay some loans for the pro-Russian wannabe dictators who just have to pay dues and they don't have money for it. And it seems the Chinese are going to jump into that picture right now. So things are definitely not going good there. And I think we reached a time when uh, we have to stop negotiating for the smaller countries and be honest about what do we want to do. Do we want to actually push this pro-democracy idea, democratic idea, and stand behind it or do we want to go back or search for some kind of status quo where we're going to reserve democracy for the big countries and then whatever happens in the small countries? I think that time has come that we are kind of entering in some kind of new cold war between democracies and authoritarian regimes. 
not between communism and capitalism and things like that, but actually between democracies and uh, authoritarian regimes. We have on one side Xi, Putin, Kim Jong-un, uh, Ayatollahs in Iran, uh, MBS, etc., and then democracies. And I think it's important for us to actually push for true democratic ideals and stand behind those small countries that have issues with it. Edin Moikic, Associate Professor of National Security and Foreign Policy at UCCS. The fourth voice on this panel for the World Affairs Council is Sky Forrester. He's a professor emeritus at the Air Force Academy, which is also his alma mater. Forrester served as a senior advisor in security and arms control policy for the Air Force. He'll speak to possible off-ramps. What I really want to get to is to try to understand the context of how we might emerge from this conflict in a way that is not a zero-sum game of unconditional surrender by one side or the other, and in the meantime, we just hunker down. So let me review a few key points, some of which have already been mentioned. Um, Since Ukraine's autumn counteroffensive, you remember that, it resulted in uh, a number of key victories, uh, military as well as political, uh, for Ukraine. Putin responded by doubling down on virtually all political and military fronts. Um, That does not bode well for a future negotiation. He annexed four Ukrainian provinces. He rattled a nuclear saber. He's mobilized hundreds of thousands of new troops, most of whom are green and many of whom are now dead. Uh, He launched a campaign designed to destroy much of Ukraine's civilian infrastructure, uh, in which he has largely succeeded. And he's pursued policies designed literally to freeze out Ukraine and European allies uh, during the winter. Uh, This so-called special operation, as Putin called it, has failed. Uh, Just as its much-vaunted late winter offensive around Bakhmut that is just wrapping up has left yet another city in Ukraine destroyed, Uh, perhaps not worth defending, but Ukrainian troops are still there in hopes of attriting Russian forces more. Russia may or may not eventually take Bakhmut or whatever bit of rubble is left of it, but it will be a Pyrrhic victory already tens of thousands of Russian casualties in that uh, battle alone, uh, and uh, by most estimates, between 200 and 250,000 Russian casualties in this war. Europe's winter was milder than expected, uh, and countries found a number of workarounds to keep the oil and gas flowing. Uh, So that did not have the intended result that Mr. Putin had hoped for. Uh, And then Mr. Putin went hat in hand to Beijing last month. And he left without not much. He got no promises of Chinese military, lethal military aid. The war was not condemned by Xi Jinping, but neither was Putin's efforts praised. Putin was again reminded that nuclear weapons should not be on the table. And what I find particularly interesting, especially when you compare that communique to the February 2022 Xi Jinping-Vladimir-Putin agreement in which they were going to be best friends forever. Here we had a lot of reminders of the importance of the principles of territorial integrity, respect for national sovereignty, and non-interference in your neighbor's affairs, uh, which I would take as a somewhat veiled criticism of Mr. Putin. Ukraine is gearing up for a much-anticipated spring offensive to capitalize on Russia's losses and the fact that Ukraine is beginning to receive new armor and artillery and ammunition. 
That may get delayed because of recent intelligence leaks um, that are causing a number of questions and trying to figure out what the implications of that are. We'll see. Whether or not that offensive materializes, however, I do not believe it's likely to be decisive. There may be some significant military victories, but nothing that I would call politically decisive. And that's really where the question comes. There is, meanwhile, growing impatience for how this war might end. Regardless of the outcome, I think we must all understand that Russia will emerge from this war weaker and a much more chastened state, militarily, economically, and demographically. And however it ends, Ukraine has already suffered substantial destruction of its civilian infrastructure and of a population of over 40 million when the war started. There are an estimated 8 million refugees outside the country and another 8 million internally displaced within the country. And U.S. and our NATO allies continue to insist at all fronts that it, we will stay with Ukraine as long as it takes. There's a growing difference in emphasis on how much we should focus on diplomatic or military measures. And within the United States, there are still those who cast doubt as to whether or not this is even worth doing even though personally I would suggest they need to read some history and think clearly about how the United States secures its global interests in a world when we have lost all our allies. But that's another conversation. How should we think of a prospective negotiated settlement? Putin wants a settlement that recognizes his claims on eastern Ukraine and ensures that Ukraine is disconnected from NATO and the EU, neutral and militarily weak. But that will only change his demands will only change if there's a significant change to the battlefield realities, which will require not just one successful Ukrainian counteroffensive, but a major rout of Russian troops in eastern Ukraine, which is not out of the realm of possibility, that triggers enough internal dissatisfaction with Putin's leadership that he feels he needs to find an off-ramp. Is that likely? No. But is it out of the question? Not out of the question. Zelensky wants a settlement that gets Russian troops out of Ukrainian territory and some sort of security guarantee for future Ukrainian security, not necessarily NATO. But, as was pointed out before, there's a long distance between these two sets of claims. The major point I think we need to understand is that we need to move off zero-sum thinking about this war. And the debate has largely seemed to me to boil down to do we find a military solution or do we find a diplomatic solution? The diplomatic solution has to wait until later when someone is about ready to concede defeat. The problem with that is that there is not likely to be the kind of military victory. You know, we think back of World War II and unconditional surrenders, and that's not going to happen here. In fact, NATO has done pretty well by, in, in the past with a number of two-track decisions pursuing military strength a strong military position while pursuing a diplomatic track at the same time. But that's going to take a lot of preparation. The U.S. and NATO, I believe, should begin discussions with Ukraine about the contours of a possible negotiated settlement. Zelensky has already put forward a 10-point plan, which should be the starting point, not the finishing point, the starting point of these discussions. We must not reward Russian aggression by recognizing illegal annexation, nor should we impose any settlement on the Ukrainian government in which they were not a full partner in those diplomatic efforts. In the meantime, I think the military track is essential. 
And I think in both the military and the diplomatic tracks, U.S. leadership is absolutely vital. Sky Forrester, a U.S. Air Force veteran who's worked in security and arms control policy. He's a professor emeritus at the Air Force Academy. And Colorado Matters continues into this next half hour. My colleague Dan Boyce asks about whether this is a proxy war and about historical parallels. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. The largest source of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members across our state. I'm from Denver. Aurora. Glenwood Springs. Grand Junction. Boulder. Ranch. With your donation, you connect your city to nonprofit journalism, to inspiring stories, and you connect your community to a wide range of music that fills our daily life. Month after month, donors continue to step up. Thank you for your support. We are getting perspective today on the war in Ukraine from a panel of foreign affairs experts assembled by the Colorado Springs World Affairs Council. Dan Boyce, CPR's Southern Colorado reporter, moderated the discussion. Gentlemen, first, so I will start here with the New START Treaty. So with President Putin announcing in February he was suspending Russia's participation in that nuclear arms reduction and sort of monitoring agreement The countries have stopped sharing much of the information they did share. Ultimately, how much does this matter? Dr. Forster? It matters, but I think it matters more politically than it does militarily or strategically. Russia's interest in the New START Treaty and maintaining the START regime that goes back until the 1980s was in preserving an on-site inspection regime that that gave it it a window into U.S. strategic assets that it did not otherwise have. And that was valuable to them. They didn't like being transparent themselves, but they lived with it. But under the circumstances, it was really the, uh, the U.S. wanting to do inspections of Russia during this conflict that Russia just said enough is enough. Now, of course, the treaty is important because it caps U.S. strategic weapons and it caps uh, Russian strategic weapons uh, in a variety of ways at relatively no, low numbers, uh, certainly a fraction of what we had back in the 1980s. Um, you know, and not much more than 2,000 strategic weapons each when we were both, you know, up in the, up in the world of 25,000 nuclear weapons each, uh, strategic ones. But Russia is not in a position to launch a major arms race in investing in, you know, thousands of new weapons and breaking these ceilings. There are new technologies on which they and we are working that aren't covered by the START Treaty in the first place. So in one sense, it's a generational issue. Uh, And I don't see the United States with substantial plans other than what's already on the books in modernizing our existing nuclear arsenal that's going to materially change the numbers that the treaty talked about. So I think it's more political than military. I'm not sure it really matters what Putin does right now. I mean, I think the construct of START and the old Soviet and the Politburo, and there was some sort of consensus that may have had to been built at that time. But now there really is no consensus building within Russia. It is Putin by himself, otherwise influenced by any one of his other criminals uh, in government. But it is Putin. It is one man. And I think now you have a level of survivorship, if you will, that he is looking to, uh, to hold, hold on to. I mean, he wants his regime to survive. Um, 
So I think that it doesn't necessarily matter what he does. We're, we're already down a path that is going to require a lot of heavy lifting on the West part. Go ahead, Dr. Mukic. I think we have to take into consideration that, you know, suspending and not pulling out might be a play for his domestic audience. He has to be tough, but at the same time, as mentioned, he can't really engage in any kind of arms race or something like that, and they would still like to know what we do and stuff like that. Uh, so I think there is, there, we, we have to take into consideration that this is a, a play for his domestic audience that he's showing Russian strength, might, but in the end, uh, it really doesn't change anything. I heard through your insights, I, I guess I would call it not necessarily a spectrum between optimism and pessimism, but a a spectrum of pessimism on on how this is is going. And sort of on one hand, we had uh, Dr. Mojkic and Carl speaking about this sort of new Cold War. And I thought that was really fascinating insight about democracies versus autocracies. I hadn't heard it kind of articulated that way. I thought that was interesting. And then on the other hand, we have sort of the the insights from Dr. Raymond about China in particular viewing this as more of a, of a convenient distraction toward its aims, not necessarily something that's propelling it towards wider conflict. To what degree, and uh, Dr. Raymond, I'll, I'll start with you, to what degree do you think this has risen to being appropriately considered a proxy war? Dr. Raymond? Jan, there's no doubt that it is a proxy war. And all you have to do is just read the New York Times summaries of the leaked intelligence documents to show the extent to which the United States and indeed Britain and other close allies are heavily involved in the operational realities on the ground, on the battlefield, providing intelligence, sometimes even real-time intelligence, to alert the Ukrainians where attacks are coming. So this is a proxy war, but the operative word is proxy. We are not directly involved. We are certainly supplying weapons, money, uh, various forms of lethal assistance to the Ukrainians, as we should and as we must continue to do. But um, it is a proxy war, but the operative word is proxy. The Chinese have dipped a little toe in the water of, of helping Russians, but not beyond that, because I agree totally with what Sky said about the fact that Putin went to Beijing and all he came away with was a T-shirt. Um, you know, he, uh, he didn't get very much out of it. Uh, further sales of uh, Russian oil at bargain basement prices, uh, not very profitable, I might add. And uh, he didn't get anything like the lethal aid that he wanted. He didn't get even a lot of diplomatic support. And the kind of euphoric, you know, friendship without end rhetoric that was going on a year ago had cooled down considerably. I, again, I agree with Sky that if I was sitting in Xi Jinping's uh, situation, I would be using Putin for all I could use him for because my pursuit is of Chinese interests first. Uh, that's how I think Xi sees it. But I don't think he wants to get militarily involved in this, in this conflict in, in the Ukraine at all. Dr. Forster? When I think of a proxy war, I think of a war between two parties being fought by two other parties to other clients. In this case, yes, the West is supporting Ukraine, so in that sense, it's one side of a proxy war. But the other side isn't a proxy war. 
Uh, the other player in this is is all in, you know, it's all in poker. So it's a it's a it's a different kind of a thing than many of us might already think about as a proxy war. It, and maybe might you say that it's Russia might like it to be more of a proxy war than it is in terms of gathering Chinese support. Yeah, it, he would love it if if he had allies that are helping, but it isn't that someone is fighting on behalf of Russia. He started this war, and there is no way to to, uh, to change all of that. As far as the relationship between Biden and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, how much might this be a bit of an analog to the early World War II relationship between Roosevelt and Churchill? Dr. Raymond? That's a very valid parallel, I think. First of all, Roosevelt and Churchill had met very, very briefly in London in 1918. That's all. So they did not know each other. Secondly, they had to really begin a long and difficult process of understanding each other. Churchill understood, perhaps I think better than most, better than certainly anybody else in the British cabinet, and I think better than probably anybody in the foreign office, how the American system worked and how difficult it was going to be for Roosevelt to respond quickly and constructively to his urgent demands for military and lethal aid. So there is a good parallel there. There was also, however, I would submit, there was also a significant ideological barrier there. I mean, and this was the Roosevelt's um, you know, obsession with the British Empire and so on. So I think there was an ideological difference there, which is quite different from that in the relationship between um, President uh, Biden and President Zelensky. But I think they have come, just as Roosevelt and Churchill did, they've come to appreciate each other very, very much. I think Roosevelt, as he came to appreciate Winston Churchill's extraordinary determination and courage in fighting for Western civilization, which is what Churchill was doing. And I think President Biden has, I think, come to appreciate that too, that in his own way, Zelensky is in a way the Churchill of the 21st century. I think he is. The protectionist, isolationist movement in America in the late 30s and early 40s, which was prominently led by Charles Lindbergh, was called the America First Movement. And there are certainly parallels today to that as well. So, Mr. Schneider, I, you are involved locally in Republican politics, being the uh, former vice chair of the El Paso County Republican Party. How important yeah. will this conflict be in the 2024 Republican presidential primaries? I think it will be absolutely a contentious point amongst Republicans. And I think for Americans as well, it'll be a deciding point as to who they support and follow. I, I will tell you that I'm, I'm shocked, befuddled, dismayed at the attitudes and the contrarian nature of the language used by Republican elected leaders in the press. I uh, do not understand how they do not see the exigency of the matter to address a totalitarian person, Vladimir Putin. It might be that we have our own tyrannical former president leader ourselves. And to the point earlier, I don't think there is an off-ramp politically due to the indictment of the International Criminal Court with Vladimir Putin. I think that people, humans, the Western culture needs accountability of its leadership. We do. 
We're seeing that internally here in the United States, where our former uh, president has been indicted, will probably be indicted in several other arenas, and rightfully so. You should not be above the law if you commit a crime. I think we have gone past the saturation point with Vladimir Putin. It's done. It's just a matter of how do we get to done done. A poll from the Pew Research Center recently found 35% of Americans uh, believe the war is a major threat. This is as of January. That's down from 50% of Americans who did in March of last year. So, uh, Dr. Forrester, you wanted to to jump in on that. Uh, seems as if kitchen table issues. The economy will be front and center on the next presidential election. How much can Ukraine possibly compete in that? I think that's a fair point. I mean, it's been on that public support of Ukraine. There was the shock after the invasion. Um, and that poll, you know, the, the baseline of that poll was a month after the invasion. Um, so it doesn't surprise me that it's gone down. There aren't a whole lot of things that you can get 35% of the American people to agree on, so I'm not entirely disappointed by that. Um, But no, people are more worried about kitchen table issues, as they say. And that's where the the election is going to be focused on. The electoral campaigns are going to be focused on. I don't think Ukraine will be a decisive factor. It will be a decisive factor, particularly, I think, in the Republican primaries, as candidates try to separate themselves one from the other. But amongst the declared and presumably almost declared candidates out there, there's a, you know, there's, there's a huge split, and I'm happy for them to fight it out. So, yes, it's going to be important, but it's not going to be the pivotal issue for the 2024 election. The results of the 2024 election, however, will be pivotal, will absolutely be pivotal. If the Ukraine war and the pattern and volume of military aid coming from the United States and its European allies has shown us one thing, it is this. European security without the United States makes no sense whatsoever. Absolutely none. The volume of military assistance provided by Britain and other European countries is significant, very significant. But the Ukrainians would have, uh, the Ukrainians just cannot cope with that level of assistance. It takes American support. And again, I underscore that European security without the United States makes no sense. CPR's Dan Boyce with foreign policy experts at the Colorado Springs World Affairs Council. Still to come, questions from the audience assembled at our Southern Colorado Public Media Center. Questions about nuclear and chemical weapons. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. October 2010, near Snowmass Village, a crew digs in mud to expand a reservoir. They find what they think are cow bones. Then a bulldozer brings up huge ribs and a tusk from a mammoth. That's not terribly unusual in Colorado, but this discovery is special. The bones are well-preserved. The skeleton is nearly complete. They find three more Colombian mammoths and significantly rare American mastodons, 35 in all. The Ice Age giants both have tusks and trunks, but are unrelated and until this discovery, never found together. The Snowmass site, also known as Snowmastodon, gives up even more treasures. Ice Age bison, horses, even a sloth and a camel. These and other animals, insects, and plants tell a story of Colorado's climate changes over millennia. But the reservoir was reflooded after only a tenth of the area was excavated, leaving more for another generation to unearth. 
a Colorado postcard from CPR with support from National Jewish Health. The conclusion now of our roundtable about the war in Ukraine, a little more than a year after Russia's invasion. CPR Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce moderated for the World Affairs Council in Colorado Springs. He turned to the audience for some questions. Hi, my name is Aaron Sparson. I'm from Colorado Springs. Uh, Thank you for participating in this panel today. This was great. You've all touched up on the revelations from the U.S. intelligence leak. I was wondering what your reaction was to it, either on the side of the leak of Ukrainian war documents that put their operations in danger, or on the uh, side of allegations that we have been spying on allies as new as Ukraine or as established as Israel and South Korea and how the United States might demonstrate accountability for this. Uh, It is a moral gray zone, but in an international relations realist sense, it does make sense. We do spy on each other because we want to know what's going on and intentions. And it's, we'll get past this. In normal times, this this is a flap, right? It's it's something that popped up on the radar, now it's gone, and it will be gone, I think. So I I don't think there's going to be any long-term effects, negative effects for the United States and or their intelligence communities. It's, It's considered business as usual, if you will. Look, in the real world of international affairs, everybody spies on everybody else, with the exception of the UK and the US, because we are so joined on the hip, we together spy on everybody else. So uh, surprise, surprise on that one. I am, however, concerned, and I share your concern, about the leak of operational details. This is, this is serious. Ukrainian soldiers' lives could be put at risk by this. I'm thinking not just of the air defense side of things, but also the 11 brigades that are being specially trained and equipped with new NATO weapons to launch this uh, Ukrainian offensive sometime, we don't know, sometime in the next month or so. That does worry me a great deal. I'll go ahead and read a question that we got from Tuck Aiken, who's on the Zoom. Should the West and the U.S. provide Ukraine with tactical nuclear weapons? No. 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 Absolutely no. And why? (laughs) Well, in the first place, it would be a violation of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which is very important to us and everybody else that's involved in this. Secondly, I mean, there's just, you know, the practical matters of how would one use them and so on. Uh, so no. And then there's a matter of we really don't have any operational ones in the European theater. The ones that the United States has in Europe have been in storage for uh, some, going on 31 years. I mean, they've been modernized, but they're in storage. Um, so it, it would even if leaving aside all the political and moral and strategic reasons that would make this a stupid move, uh, it would be difficult actually to implement as well. Uh, Let's put on aside everything, politics and everything. If you introduce tactical nuclear weapons into theater, Russians will do the same, and then you're going to have a nuclear war. And and that's a really great point, that the Russians will do the same and I think they've said that they are going to and intend to in Belarus. There would be an alibi. Yeah. 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 Here, here. Here, here. Pretty clear on that one. Hi, I'm Scott Dorf from uh, Colorado Springs. So as a follow-up then, we've seen a number of surprises in this conflict already. Sky mentioned, you know, that there's the potential for a, the spring offensive coming and that it could be, from Putin's perspective, catastrophic. 
where are we along the, the uh, line of the potential use of nuclear weapons by him if he starts to see this as almost being regime survival, in his mind, okay, anyway, and what's your thoughts about where that line could be drawn in his mind? Trying to read something that's pretty difficult. I think he's based, you know, with the intelligence and the information that he has now, I think he's doing the math. I think he's seriously contemplating, and I think he just might use it. I think your point is well made, Scott, that, you know, it could be a death blow to his regime. And when those guys get desperate, what do they have to lose that they're not already going to? I think he has only things to gain. Uh, And I hope I'm wrong. Many people assume that if Putin uses nuclear weapons, the West will use nuclear weapons. And I think that's the last thing we will do. A, for the reason I just mentioned, it's not that we have a lot of operational ones to use. And the ones that we have operational are strategic, and we would never use those. And let, except for in, in terms of deterring strategic nuclear attack on, on us or our allies. But here is what I would presume is a message that has been conveyed to Putin and Lavrov and everybody else early and often. If you were to use battlefield nuclear weapons, this is what would happen. All those restraints that the United States and NATO have held back, we're not going to target the other side of the Russian border. We're not going to strike things in your side, in your country. All those rules go off the table. And it doesn't require nuclear weapons for NATO and particularly the United States Mm -hmm. to mobilize the kind of conventional military attack that would essentially eliminate Russia's ability to perpetrate this war, to continue this war in Ukraine. So the consequence of a don't you dare, I'm going to, this is what I'm going to do, and don't you, you, you guys better go home. The answer will be, you just lost your ability to continue this war on your own terms, Mr. Putin. Second point, China has now reminded their best friend forever that <laughs> nuclear weapons should not be used at all, and they've done it like two or three times already pretty clearly. So I think he has a lot to lose if he goes to that nuclear route. My name is Jim Hunter. Is there any chance that we'll supply aircraft to Ukraine like A-10s or AC-130s? And also, presumably, Russia has quite a large inventory of, of chemical weapons. Do you think they would use them before they went to uh, uh, nuclear? I think that the West would look upon that as, you know, same. the same. Yeah. The same. Is it possible that in their calculus that would be a good, not quite nuclear, but it's a good, you know, a, a medium, if you will, happy medium? Um, potentially, you know, they could, but the Western response would be as if it were a nuclear. A-10s, no, unless you have 100% control of the sky. F-16s, maybe. I think after we are depleted, all, all MiG-29s available in NATO countries, uh, yeah, then, then yes. Yeah. A discussion of the war in Ukraine assembled by the Colorado Springs World Affairs Council. CPR's Dan Boyce moderated in front of a studio and virtual audience this week. Our thanks to the experts, Ray Raymond, Carl Schneider, Edin Moikich, and Sky Forrester. And special thanks to Justin Peacock, who engineered at our Southern Colorado Public Media Center in the heart of the Springs. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.